Hey guys, this is Emmett, and this is your weekly installment of Exhaust, the podcast about why nothing feels possible. Today, I am joined by Default Friend. Hello, Default Friend. Hey. And if I'm not mistaken, you are the main contributor to Default Wisdom uh, Substack, which is great, and the co-host of After the Orgy with the Personality Girl, which has also become a new favorite of mine. Oh, thank you. I'm happy to hear that. But you guys did the cat person episode. Yes. Which I adored. And I mean, I just like binge watch whenever you guys, binge listen whenever you guys release. Oh yeah. I'm I'm really, I'm really happy to hear that. We, yeah, we, we missed two weeks. And like in those two weeks, we were like, are people listening to this? Do people like it? So it's, it's a relief to hear that we have some listeners. (laughs) Yeah, I was just like, when you guys were gone for two weeks, I was like, oh, I'm sure they're busy, but I can't wait till the next one comes out. I find it a very psychologically honest and fair podcast, and there aren't a lot of those out there. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, especially with some of the topics you guys deal with. So everybody, you can find those things in the show notes. But today, we are going to talk about something that Default Friend wrote, which is titled, let me pull it up, The Culture of Confession, which is sort of about the period from 2008 to about 2015 and the cultural literary moment of like uh, over divulging about one's personal life while distancing oneself from it. So the piece begins with something really interesting. You bring forward something that reminded me almost of like, I guess, Adam Curtis in a way is that you suggest that there needs to be like this emotional history uh, of the landscape of the internet in this age. And I was wondering if you could sort of characterize what you mean by that. I think we like sort of underrate the way like people's attitudes change. Um, Cause it's more than just like aesthetics, right? Like how people are identifying with themselves. Um, mm-hmm and their own relationships with their own emotions seem to have changed as the internet has grown, um, you know, as much as anything else. Yeah. And I mean, I think you're right to point out that there does feel like you've done this on several threads. You had a really great thread sort of looking around at aestheticization of like mental illness and especially like eating disorders in the early internet, which has changed a lot since then. Um, I think there's still some like vestiges of how that all worked now Uh, But that's something that I really remember from that era. And it's almost like these things are slowly getting lost in time as the experience of the internet more just becomes these like platforms and apps. Yeah. And I I mean, part of the problem is like, you know, for the longest time, we didn't take internet culture seriously as like, like something that should be reported on, um, except for sort of these like tabloid style oddities. Like, of course, there was, there were a lot of articles about like the, you know, pro-Anna movement. I mean, as far back as 1994, which I mean is like very, very early if you think about, um, you know, the the timeline of the internet. Um, mm-hmm. But it was sort of it's it, you know they're they're tabloid pieces. It's it's it was it was clickbait. It, it wasn't um, a serious history. And even now, um, you know, there we have some, um, I think, very good internet culture reporters, but it's always politicized or like mm. their actual uh, culture reporting is minimized um, in the you know in exchange for like drama. Um, I I hate to bring her up, but I think like Taylor Lorenz is like a very good example of this. Like 
She writes some very interesting and I think important things about TikTok. But of course, it's like, you know, when we think Taylor Lorenz, we think of somebody who's constantly beefing with people on Twitter and not someone who's writing very like thoughtful and necessary pieces about how culture is emerging from TikTok. And what ends up happening is people are like, oh, well, like, you know, your work isn't important because the journalist is now a media personality more than, you know, more than they're seen as, as people with a craft. And um, so it's like, even if things are being published, they, they aren't really being read or appreciated in the way that they should be. Yeah, and they're sort of slaves to the click economy. Totally. You know, having those sort of deep dives into some of what you've done, I think you've done a great job sort of modeling how this might look, at least initial sketches of it. And that is like not the thing like Gizmodo or whoever is going to shell out cash for you to like thoughtfully, relatively dispassionately like walk through, right? They're going to be like, who do I get to call like a Nazi here or whatever, you know, like uh, what do I get to make as the headline? And I think also, you know, when you, uh, when we talk about this as more of like a mode of being with oneself than just aesthetics, my experience in trying to do freelance work is how subtly the like 1099 economy of like pitching articles slowly starts to take over your mind and tailor how you think. So you're no longer even devising the idea of a thoughtful, complicated, maybe emotionally difficult deep dive into part of culture, you're slowly cauterizing the parts of yourself that are capable of doing that because there's no need for that in that economy. Yeah, I think, I think you're, you're totally right. Um, one thing that I, you know, I've written a little bit about is how there's no subculture anymore that feels like surprising or hidden. Um, and part of that is because for like the longest time, and I used to do this myself, um, you know, you know that you could get between 50 and $250 a pop for an article, um, you know, in Vice or what, you know, whatever, you know, Jezebel, you know, one of these outlets. And what you end up doing is you like, or at least what people were doing between, uh, you know, 2009, 2015-ish is like trawling Reddit and Tumblr and even like Wikipedia, just like looking for like, well, which one of these is weird? And which one of these can I get an article out of? And which one of these will surprise the audience? And which one of these will get the, you know, it, I remember, I forget uh, which outlet it was, but like one of these outlets is like, you actually get more money if you get more comments um, in the comment section and mm. we'll like re-up it with like every 600 comments or whatever that you get. Um, you know, if you, so you, of course you are like, oh, I need to generate outrage. And you don't, it's not really journalism. It's like this weird sort of like scavenger hunt on the internet trying to, uh, you know, just document anything that seems kind of weird. Um, and we don't really like talk about that. And I, I feel like sometimes it's gestured at, but it, it's like, it's, it's so obvious if you like go look at the archives of any of these, you know, any of the big websites of, of the day, it's like all about just, it's, I mean, it's, it's tabloid, it's tabloid writing and it's, it's contorted to fit the confines of the internet. Yeah. And it has this 
distorting effect, right? Because they're like, this thing has happened on the internet. And you're at the way they talk about it is if it is this new huge craze that has taken. And then if you know, you have your wits about you and you don't get sort of sucked into the clickbait, you're like, this has got to be like 20 people, maybe. Yeah, totally. Or like it misses like important context. And now we're like, now I feel like it's it's really hard to I think there are some very good like investigative journalists who do write honestly, but it is it's like very hard to be honest about like what types of people certain communities attract. Like it would I think it would be like pretty like frowned upon if, you know, let's say there's some hypothetical subculture and it like happens to attract people with like a certain kind of trauma. Um, and like, I think that's like a relevant detail, um, but it's like that piece always gets missed or it has to be somehow politicized. And it, it you know, I think sometimes it is the case that like certain subcultures affect um, or attract, you know, people with certain backgrounds because it provides a home for them. Whereas like the, maybe the larger community or the larger culture does not. and it's it's really strange how how like you just you can't say something like that anymore even though you know saying it right now feels like kind of benign like of course of course that happens yeah yeah i mean it's just like saying at the same time that this has happened i think there's been a longer cultural trend that like you know that jane's addiction album cover nothing shocking you know it's uh it's all been done i think one of my hottest takes is that punk rock is about owning a small business (laughs) you know, like whatever was transgressive also has a hard time having any real teeth. So it makes sense that there becomes this attention economy around looking for things that have to do with exploiting people's emotional problems or whatever, or unveiling communities that are sort of circled around those in an unserious way, because doing that is going to elicit a response that no... I would say like cultural aesthetic can do anymore. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you're totally right. And I mean, I was just, I was on a podcast earlier this week and I like kind of got into, you know, like a good natured argument with the host about like whether or not, um, you know, being socially conservative is, is punk and like, whether like, you know, what's the deal with people saying that? And it's like, well, I mean, like, frankly, it it kind of is like, I got married in my early twenties and it was probably, you know, the most shocking thing I could have done in a, a sea of like very cosmopolitan people who said that if they had kids, if they got married, it would be in their mid thirties. Um, you know, and then I moved to the burbs and that was for, you know, for my environment, I, I couldn't get more punk than that. Um, it, it was the number one way to say fuck you to the man. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that I've noticed over the past few years is the left and the like liberal adjacent fear, however we want to characterize that, has a hard time fully appreciating its cultural hegemony. Like it seems to be in deep denial about that. I mean, I live in Los Angeles. It's obvious to me. (laughs) This is like the Death Star for that type of stuff, you know? And I'm not even saying that I hate all of it or whatever. It's just like the reality that it is the main prism through which we experience discursively and aesthetically our entire society. Like you can't look at the entire like Marvel franchise, which has been going on for a decade and be like the conservative voice is the dominant one in society. Totally. I I totally agree. And I mean, like, it's also like the aspirational one and it's the one that, you know, like the kid who does leave their hometown dreams of joining that culture, not uh, maintaining 
maybe, you know, the last vestige of it that they, they grew up with. I, I, I argue with my sisters about this and they say that I'm like sort of Twitter brained um, and that I, you know, like I have it all wrong. It's not really that bad, but I kind of, you know, it's, it's like they have some sort of, they have some socially conservative, you know, attitudes left, but at the same time, I feel like they're constantly aspiring towards that sort of like New York, LA lifestyle. So even if, even more than I am in a lot of ways, and you know, I am the one who moved to like a big coastal city. It's so it, it so it's interesting. It's interesting to see like that that denial. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I mean, I wonder if there's a similar dynamic going on there with what you identify in. I mean, maybe I'm wrong here. You can correct me. In what you identify with the culture of confession, where there social media allows for the ability to be. Com- in- incredibly revealing about your life and that that creates its own aesthetic but at the same time for that to be tolerable to people that participate in it Jessica Rabbit White or I think Tao Lin is another example you have there also has to be this sort of um, insouciant and sometimes even like nihilistic self-distancing that it also doesn't matter at all and it's like that is used to lower the barrier for entry to extreme confession. And it works as its own type of like psychological denial about what's really happening on the screen. Yeah, I I think so. I mean, I think that um, especially for millennials, being so open is a way to, you know, it's like the, the real like emotional vulnerability isn't present in confessing everything. It's, it's in, it's usually like in the footnotes, right? Like it's, it's not like, you going through like every step of how like you did heroin with your childhood best friend and like then you realized in that moment that like you know you were doing it recreationally but she was then addicted and it you know changed the course of her life right Uh, like that these are the kinds of anecdotes that were regularly being shared you know it's it's sort of in the the comment that you leave under that where it's where you're like you know I, I, I like I, you know, I cried for the rest of the night or something that like gets, and it gets totally like brushed off. Um, and it, it was, it's really, it was really interesting. And I feel like uh, you don't, you don't hear about that very often. You don't like, you just hear about like, oh, wow. Like these, you know, these writers were so, were so open. Um, but the real, the real openness was always in like the parenthetical. Uh, Marie Calloway, who I'm actually um, kind of friendly with, but I remember like, her, her book, What Purpose Did I Serve in Your Life, um, was also a lot like that. It was just like painful, uh, like minute details about her sex life. Um, and, you know, it, you walk away from that book not really knowing about who she is as a person, despite having all these details, because it was so distanced and almost like reported. But then like, you know, like the real vulnerability comes in, like the Facebook status that's like, the, the com- you know, the comment section really hurts my feelings or, you know, whatever, whatever thing. Yeah. It's interesting. Right. Because when I hear that, I think about the, um, the confessional poets of the mid 20th century. I think listeners to podcasts know I'm a devotee of some of them. And I mean, these people were like uh, super dysfunctional and crazy and did seem to, especially if you look at John Berryman's 11 addresses to the Lord, it's confessional to the point where you're not sure where it values, it, what it values. And it, there, there's almost like this weird psychic inheritance that's happening there that I haven't been quite able to identify. But I think that 
And your piece, I think, smartly starts with Facebook and the way it allows us to look at each other. Like, we don't talk anymore about what it was like to have Facebook happen and what a shift that was. And like going to college parties where whoever brought the camera was sort of like the god of the archive of the party. I mean, if you look at somebody who's maintained their Facebook since they were like, they're about my age, you know, early to mid thirties, like, and they've had it since they were in undergrad, like 10, 15 years ago, the amount of photos per party would be like unacceptable. Now there's just also like no curation or anything like that because everyone was amazed that you could look at yourself like that. But I think there's almost an older iteration of that, or that becomes acceptable and interesting in an internet that isn't dominated by platforms and has things like live journal, where the act of confession is this anonymous act of daring. And you have your whole like friends list. You can check on their journals too. I think that's also where a lot of these writers probably found their voice and learned to write for an audience for the first time is confessing about their daily lives, revealing in this diaristic way, uh, their deepest secrets to sometimes friends, sometimes strangers in aesthetically largely anonymous um, internet milieus. Yeah, you know, that's, that's actually, that's a really interesting point because, you know, I, I do feel like a lot of the sort of like alt-lit crowd evolved with the internet. And as the internet moved on, so did they. And we often refer back to like weird Facebook, um, but we don't talk about how like before, you know, before this cohort was on weird Facebook and writing alt-lit or, you know, whatever other scene we happen to be referencing, they were probably on LiveJournal and Zanga, which was the era right before Facebook. Yeah. And like in MySpace and everything that, that yeah. everything that we have after, you know, Finn McKenty over at Punk Rock MBA has like a really good video about this. And we've referenced it a lot, but like every social media platform we have now is basically just a version of MySpace. Like it has a lot of the same features, the same assumptions about how people want to interact. And uh, this is where a lot of this stuff was sort of worked out for the first time. This was how we became visible to each other. I, I mean, I, I miss MySpace. I like, obviously, like I have a real affection for, for MySpace. My handle is default friend. Um, you know, it's like, I, <laughs> I, 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 it's interesting. I, I don't think we, I think we're all sort of, we have MySpace in the back of our minds, but we don't really talk about it a lot. This is sort of off topic, but like I saw a TikTok about, you know, like sort of uncovering uh, Tila Tequila for like, you know, Gen Z folks. And it's like, wow, like I remember when I was, I was so excited that I sent Tila Tequila a message and she responded and it was like, <laughs> is she a celebrity? Is she not? Like, what, you know. I mean, one of the first influencers, right? Like whatever happens to her later, a lot of that stuff gets pioneered there. And I think you're smart in your piece to bring up Paris Hilton, you know, who I think is also a pioneer of that economy. Yeah, I mean, totally. There is this, this whole period of time where like, you know, I think reality TV was like serving the same purpose that a lot of like, you know, maybe two or three years ago, Instagram influencers might have served. Um, and, you know, today, like TikTok influencers serve. Yeah. And the sort of um, the make reality of it all, 
you know, I'm so naive to all this stuff. You know, my wife grew up in LA. She's just like way more copped on to like when someone's faking it or whatever. I was like uh, watching her watch like an Instagram thing. Uh, we were hanging out the other night and I was like, oh, wow, their skin looks great. She was like, yeah, that's a filter. And I was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I just don't, I just don't know. But that's sort of what was happening in things like uh, Paris Hilton's The Simple Life. You know, in the documentary she releases, I think last year, maybe it was earlier this year, I can't really remember. You know, she she's like, yeah, the voice I have is, uh, I think a writer over M plus one referred to it as female Batman voice. <laughs> you know, it's like totally fabricated and that's not her personality. And that she had this brutal experience that plenty of my friends have had in sort of the, the troubled teen network of going to one of these like outdoor rehab camps that are totally insane. And she was like forced to do all sorts of chores. And then she re uh, connects with a lot of the people who were there with her. And they were like, I watched the simple life. And when you said you didn't know how to sleep, how to sweep anything, I laughed out loud because that's all we did for hours. And like that to me is like very similar to the way things are adjusted or fine tuned or whatever within the apps that we use now. Yeah, com completely. And it, it's, you know, it's, it's been very interesting for me. Like I find um, like, even in my own personal experience, I find like I kind of struggle with social media because I don't, I don't know how to compartmentalize myself. I sort of throw it all out there um, and then there's like people are subscribing for different versions um, and that's really weird to to try to like you know it's, I feel like I'm constantly a b testing like what facets of my personality are most appealing to my audience and like which one should I be putting center stage and like ultimately it's never you know it's it's never any one side of myself I'm just like fuck it I you know I of course I want an audience and I want readers but I don't know how to be a personality because I'm, I'm too old. I mean, just, you know, I, I live too much time <laughs> offline. It's that simple. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> it's so funny that you say that. Cause I've been thinking about this a lot when I listen to your show and I've, I've thought a lot about the line, the internet runs on female pain. And I think it was like, Amber Lee Frost that said it, maybe it was somebody else, but I remember hearing it from her first. And I know Anna Katchian has talked about this too. And how that works with the culture of confession, where because so much of what we talked about, the way this thing like sort of exploits psychological wounds and stuff like that, there becomes this whole economy that like invites that level of divulging, I would say, especially from women and sometimes really exploits that for, you know, like, I mean, what did people get paid at XO Jane? for like writing about but, their horrific experiences, you know? It, it was, uh, oh God, like Kat Marnell is like another, you know, I, I, I'm sure you're referring to, um, it happened to me, but like, think about, you know, they, everyone wanted to be Kat Marnell and like Kat mm -hmm. Marnell also was like a, you know, a person who you thought of and you're like, oh, you know, at least I'm not that bad. It, you know, it felt like she was, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of like, you, you you're just having a bad day and you like pop into like an AA meeting and like you real it's like grounding for the reasons it's grounding but it's also grounding because it's like all right like you know we've all been through it sort of feeling um, yeah totally you have that solidarity you know yeah and but like Kat Marnell was like a one woman AA meeting except obviously <laughs> not but you know she had the I, same I totally feel you yeah I know what you're <laughs> saying absolutely
Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the perfect line if it happened to me, right? Like that's, you know, uh, yeah. of course, like it, it's it's eliciting that response. I think like this whole period of time is like, you know, millennials really felt like disadvantaged and we had no way of addressing it. Um, so like the only thing we could do is just like compulsively confess, but we had to distance ourselves because if we really you know, if we really sat down and said, it happened to me, and this was the impact of it happening to me, then we would kill ourselves. I mean, like, you know, it sounds a little dramatic, but seriously, like, people went through some serious shit. And it was a very, I think, a very just dark period of time for a lot of people economically and psychologically. And it, it's, it's so crazy, because I, I feel like, you know, I feel like my views on the world were like completely informed by that period of time. Yeah, totally. I remember my mom sending this thing to me. She was doing some research into like Freud's archives or whatever. She's very into like Jung and Freud. And she found, I think, some some journal entries he'd recorded about some sessions with World War One vets, you know. So obviously like the extremest of extreme negative experiences you can have, um, some of whom lo- lost their limbs. And one thing that he noticed is that over a period of time, the soldiers who stopped trying to touch where the wound was on their body while they were recounting their experiences were the ones that recovered and could figure out how to live a normal life. And those that had this compulsion to keep touching the wound never got over it. And what's disturbing to me now that I'm in my thirties is looking back at this culture of confession period and realizing that this was really um, a financially incentivized uh, cultural experience of continuing to touch the wound for those of us in the millennial generation that had, you know, a decade of their lives canceled by a financial crisis before things could really get started. Completely. I mean, like, you know, I, I have friends who were constantly like pitching things, not just to ExoJame, but to there's like a whole suite of websites. And again, it was usually $50 a pop to like, right, you know, like about like your molestation experience. I mean, just like the most painful possible things. And now the culture is shifting and it's like, it's not that there's, you know, stigma around that, you know, around that kind of thing, but just like when you're, you know, you get into your late twenties or you get into your, your thirties, you realize like, I don't really want, uh, you know, the, and this is a real example, like the very painful story of like how, you know, like a friend of mine, uh, you know, found her mother dead. Like, I don't, you know, they don't want that story out there on the, on the internet. And the, even if like it gets, you can get it taken down, it's archived forever. God knows how many times it was shared. And it's, it's part of you. A lot of people were publishing these things under their real name too. And it, it was worth $50 at the time um, because $50 is probably you know, a week or more worth of food, but, you know, you have like an office job and you've moved on and it's just there and there's nothing you could do about it. Right. Right. I mean, it seems like we, (laughs) I remember thinking back, right. When I was a teenager, how private the internet felt and, you know, I still somehow have the access to my old live journal which I have like reread in its entirety, which I can tell you was one of the cringiest things I've ever done to myself. Like it was 
that was more taxing than a lot of things I've experienced as an adult. <laughs> I deleted um, mine. I was like, there's no way I'm letting this live on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, I was going through and I was just like, wow, you know, first of all, it helps to not have a developed prefrontal cortex. Like that's like a total asset for culture of confession. Like this isn't going to last that long, but it was also that um, it seemed to me like, sort of experimenting with the ideas of mental illness as an aesthetic or something like that in that moment when we were teens suddenly became uh, communalized and instrumentalized by social media in a way that it wasn't before. And that of course, once you start to do that, you're now aggregating groups of people and that's going to take on a political valence no matter what. And it seems like that's sort of the, psychopolitical trajectory of the millennials from what I see. It's no surprise to me that the people who were dicking around on MySpace and LiveJournal and confessing whatever, and then end up writing these pieces are also the people that develop wokeness. Yeah, I, I'm completely with you. Um, of course, we're missing a very important step there, which is Tumblr, which really- Oh God, yes, yeah. I missed that boat, so I don't know a lot about it. Can you like, what's the, like, give me the deets on Tumblr. Like I was totally gone from that. Like I missed it. I was just, I wasn't quite there. Uh, you know, so I think there's like this sort of, uh, the right loves to minimize 4chan. Um, but 4chan I think really did do a lot to, you know, give people act, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily think people radicalized, but like give people access to certain like far right literature like you can't look at me with a straight face and you know tell me that 4chan didn't do anything when we have uh, you know people in their early twenties who know who Evola is. I mean, it's just like for, you totally. Know, for fuck's sake. Well, and also I would just just to add to that real quick to me, what happens in Zuccotti Park is to me basically politically identical to what happens with Anonymous's War on Scientology. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I, I actually I completely agree with that. Um, but anyway, so you had this thing with four, with 4chan is like very well known, well documented. Um, but what people don't really say, and I think it's because, except, you know, what people don't say, except for maybe Angela Nagel, who says it very well in uh, Kill All Normies, is that Tumblr is doing the same exact thing for, um, you know, the left. And I'm going to say the left and the right, like kind of in scare quotes, because it's not, you know, they're not necessarily literally reflecting any like coherent political ideology, but you know, there's, you know, two sides of the same coin. Um, And the empirical left and right of our moment. Right. Perhaps. And I think like, uh, you know, Tumblr is where a lot of people get their information about identity politics because it's, it's just, you know, it was just like the nature of the platform. Um, in the same way on MySpace, it was like, you know, you were uh, depressed and anxious bisexual and like people were discovering what it meant to be clinically depressed for the first time. And on LiveJournal, uh, something similar happened with anorexia. On Tumblr, you have um, multiple systems, which is uh, people who have dissociative identity disorder. Uh, there's an explosion of conversation about different gender identities. Um, you know, there's, I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole bunch of things. And it, you know, if you look back at articles that are being written, we have something called the social justice warrior, which you can always tell if someone's a millennial, if they say SJW instead of woke, but 
everyone yeah, was like that's a really good point yeah <laughs> you know it's like this was like a freak show that everyone was like oh, this is never going to happen and then suddenly it goes mainstream and i it's it's here's my hot take it's it's not that people learned this stuff in college and then you know, like the colleges were infecting everyone it was that like everyone was terminally online um they were you know and they're like 14th year of grad school or whatever um, and <laughs> They're taking, they're taking people like it's, it's, you know, freaks on the internet who are bastardizing real academic texts or real movements from the late sixties. And then they're learning about it on Tumblr and then they're taking it to their universities. So everyone has it the other way around. Um, yes. Cause, yes. Cause you know, I remember when I was an, an undergrad, like a lot of this stuff was like, like even like my professors like kind of knew about it, but I was like, eh, fuck it. These people are crazy. It's like, it's the youth who infected the schools, right? <laughs> totally. <laughs> so I think James Lindsay gets wrong. Yeah, I got my master's at a conservative institution, right? St. John's College, the great books. You don't really get much more conservative than that, right? And I knew that there was something off in the critiques of the academy while being there because, of course, I made friends with undergrads, some of whom are still my friends now, which is very lucky and I love them dearly. Um, and, you know, I was like woke-ish then, but I was seeing like these 18 year olds roll into the freshman class. And I was like, holy shit, they are preloaded. Like St. John's as a conservative institution isn't becoming woke because the curriculum is woke. Right. You know, it's gotta be the other way around. It's, I mean, it's really, it's, it's weird that like this, I think like very important piece is always like missing from the conversation. Um, because here's the other thing, like intersectionality is like a really great example. What your average 20 year old understands as intersectionality isn't intersectionality as you would have been taught it in 2007, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's a lot of these concepts have been, have the, the names are the same, but what they are have been cha totally changed. If you hear a Zoomer talk about Marx and you've read Marx, you, you're like, well, what the what the fuck are you talking about, right? Um, emotional labor is another concept that's just yeah. like, it means something different than it, you know, a millennial who learned about it in school and versus a Zoomer who talks about it now, two totally different definitions. Yeah, and that they've had this like chain of influence on each other that feels like, you know, so we've been doing a long series on Alasdair McIntyre's After Virtue, and he discusses the general intellectual project of the Enlightenment ends up unleashing this canticle for Leibowitz moment where we're really just piecing together disconnected ideas of an ethics rather than understanding a tradition or root of anything. And it feels that way with politics now after 4chan and Tumblr. Totally. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I, I think people are, there's a lot on, you know, sort of all, you know, all sides, people just kind of like thinking, oh, this is what someone who you know, is like maybe in this direction, like this is something that they might have said or might believe and making stuff up and filling in the blanks. Yeah. And it's, it's arriving disconnected. It's also like, you know, I was thinking about that. This, I was, I was writing before we hopped in here and I, I was basically writing about a specific experience I had in Santa Fe, which was, you know, the Basilica cathedral Basilica of St. Francis there has been there since in some form or another, the early 1600s, right? I mean, that's old for America. 
And I remember walking in there while I was at St. John's and you would just walk straight up and then hang a left. And you see this little offshoot that has all of these relics in there. And I was reading Thomas Aquinas at the time. And there I was staring at a bone fragment of St. Thomas Aquinas's. And that was shocking to me, you know, first of all, as an American, but then as a young person, you know, relatively young anyway. And it seems like young people are very predisposed as, you know, I probably would be if I were growing up now to enter into these things without really any idea of what context might mean because nothing feels like context when you're young. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a really good point. I think that like, I I mean, like the only context you have is your own experience. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it just seems like, um, I don't know how to, I'm going to put it probably stupidly here, but that just feels like reality, not this thing that has like existed before you and that you are now continuing. It's just like, things are the way they are now. And they've probably always been this way because they've always been this way for my whole lifetime. And I don't have anything to compare it to. I mean, that's very much the suburban experience, no matter what. Right. No, I think, I think you're totally right there. It, you know, it's funny, I was, I was actually watching like an old episode of 90 Day Fiance last night. And this uh, young woman from Bradenton, Florida, um, which you, you might be familiar with, but for anyone yeah. who's not, it's, it's like, you know, it's on the panhandle, I, I'm pretty sure it's like, it's, it's the part of Florida that's the south. She's in Morocco. And she just like, can't understand why Morocco isn't like Florida. Um, <laughs> that's amazing. Oh, my God. <laughs> And it was like, I, you know, I forgot that this is what you're, she, she was, you know, she wasn't the, the brightest chick, but like, also she was 22. And it's like, yeah. I forgot that that's, that is actually exactly what it's like when you're 22 and you're just getting your feet wet in life. You go to Morocco and you don't understand why Morocco isn't like Florida. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I think that that's just going to be true no matter what. What's troubling to me is that, um, you know, we've passed through this culture of confession. We've entered this hyper-political moment. It's am- it's kind of ambiguous to me where we're going. I don't really know right now. Uh, I mean, if I did, I'd probably be living a different life and have a lot more money. Um, it's astounding to me that millennials are generally in their late 20s or just deep into their 30s now, I guess. And the boomers have held on to everything for so long that there is this sort of suspended adolescence where I still see a lot of these dynamics that you've identified play out now within our peer group online. It is our relationship to the internet. Yeah. I I mean, being, being millennial is a weird thing. And I think this has been started to like, people are starting to document this, like millennials can't accept that they're aging and that like they are, Mm -hmm. you know, we are to Zoomers as Gen X was to us. And it's weird to be in this, you know, state of like suspended adolescence, but then like the stuff that was cool and you were, you know, 18, 19 is now retro. Um, and it, <laughs> yeah. it's mindful. Yeah. No, no, totally. I, I worked with teenagers and, and, and my wife does. And man, like, 
some of the things she has reported back to me has made me feel like I'm the Nazi in Indiana Jones and the Lost Ark that picked the wrong cup. And I'm just like melting into a dead skeleton. <laughs> it makes me feel so old. You know? I'm like the crypt keeper or something. Um, and that's, that's fine. I guess that's just the way um, that that goes. But there's this other thing that happens, I think, with the culture of confession where and I see this with that like Harry Potter dynamic and stuff like that. This idea that your trauma is what not only uh, makes you special, it is like your defining trait overall. And that it's also like tied to almost like aristocratic bloodline ideas. I mean, the amount that that gets repeated in media, especially in like YA novels, which is basically a whole millennial thing now that I don't really think has to do with kids is disturbing to me. There's almost like this weird reactionary aristocratic undercurrent to it that also has to do with this idea that like, there's nothing you really have to do. You just have to wait for the moment where your inherent greatness will be revealed. Yeah. You know, that's a good point. I think, I think you're right. I think that millennials are also sort of like perpetually waiting for their big break. At, you know, like their letter from Hogwarts. Yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, for a lot of people, for most people, it's it's never going to come um, because you have to, you have to constantly be trying and persisting. And now you have this complicated factor where like, your complicating factor rather, where um, we still live in a culture that trades on youth and mm, mm-hmm. uh, people are going to care a lot less if you're like 35. I, I mean, it's not that you can't, um, you can't make it as an older person, but uh, the, the like the easiest way to make it is via social media, um, mm-hmm. and social media, especially like cares what you look like and it it cares how old you are, and uh, it cares if you're polarized. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's 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 really it's 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 a difficult market. Right. It's made you wonder how culture will be handed down or has been handed down already. I think Chris Ott is the first person that made me really consider this um, in his YouTube stuff, which variously gets re-uploaded and taken down by fans of his ever since he deleted it. But he was very concerned with the idea that like pop music history would be correctly relayed to the youth because that's important for the cultivation of the self which is, I think, a very like rare perspective to have on that. Uh, and um, I think I'm kind of dignified in a way. But I guess, if I, you know, I, I talked to a Gen X friend of mine about a Robert Downey Jr. Docu- documentary on the 1992 elections a couple episodes ago. And just this week, we were sort of like reflecting on everything we talked about. And he asked me to watch reaction videos of zoomers watching the smells like teen spirit video for the first time watching kids like call kurt cobain who's a great songwriter and absolutely shitty guitarist like an amazing guitarist who's so talented i was just like wow this is just going to be inherited in a way that i will never be able to take part in or understand or whatever it's so beyond me i just i don't know what that cultural transmission looks like now maybe it's for the better i don't know no, no, I actually, I, I, I think you're right. Um, because it, it helps you like shape your own taste and like create your own work to know 
what comes before you. I mean, the other thing is like, you have this real breakdown of like kinship, like millennials had bad relationships with their parents. And um, I, you know, like boomers very famously had bad relationships with their parents. And, um, you know, so you don't have, even between within families, you don't have like information being passed down. Um, but at least like we sort of had the benefit of like, I was introduced by to a lot of music by like, you know, some burnout college dropout in my hometown who's like totally playing yeah. me, you know <laughs> yeah totally I know exactly the type you're talking about yeah yeah or the cool older older brother or sister figure or whoever there was this um uh early 20s to teen relationship you talked about this in a way on I think Tim Wilcox's double vision um and you talked about how weird it is to watch um she's all that and like one of the high schoolers is just like casually in a relationship with somebody in their twenties, which is really uncomfortable now to think about. But when I thought about it, it also, was also just like a feature of social life then. Totally. I mean, like when I was a freshman and like a freshman in high school, I was like not explicitly dating, but like kind of had like a thing with a sophomore in college and like everyone knew about it, including my parents. And I just like, I mean, the only thing was like, just like, don't have sex and then you know it's fine like go go spend the night in this you know 19 year old's dorm it's fine who cares and but no one saw him as like a pedophile or anything like looking back on it I didn't feel violated like it was totally, totally normalized and you know I wasn't the only one in that situation either no or the relationship you know I worked in a comic shop which like I would cut class in seventh grade and like take off my school uniform and like sprint three blocks to get out of gym class um, before anyone would notice to go work at a comic shop. And I worked there on weekends and that introduced me to all sorts of people who were like basically what we'd call fail sons now, because like being into superheroes and shit like that is not like it is now where it's just this built in huge part of our culture. It was so fucking lame and everyone there was living some sort of like damaged, very quietly desperate life you know, and the amount of time I spent with people who were like way older than me or like the first drug deal I ever went to was with some like 26 year old I worked with there. And I was like 14 or 15, you know, or the first time I ever got hammered was before work there or like all of these things happened. And I'm like these third places and these non-internet meat space places where you'd come into contact with this, like, I don't know if they exist in the same way for Zoomers. It really doesn't seem like it does because what I've witnessed of Zoomers personally and what I've read through like, I think her last name is Twinge or whatever, is like, they don't, their life is their phone. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think a lot of them talk to adults like on Twitter or TikTok or whatever, but it, it, you know, it is really, it is different. Um, I mean, there was lots of, as I'm sure you know, like lots of predatory behavior that, happened in those like sort of spaces where like you know they're adults but they're not like real they're not like our parents um but I do think there's like a lot there's at least for me like a lot of really valuable learning that went on and I don't think it's the same when you're just like when you know you're you're 20 and a 30 year old is in your dms it's it, it takes on a much different character when you're like seeing it and you're having fun because you wouldn't have accessed alcohol or a party otherwise. But then the part of you, you're like, 
I don't want to be like this. And then of course you become like this and then you, you, and then you grow <laughs> yeah. out of it. <laughs> yeah. 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 That has its own like telos that you work through, you know, like as you're, as you're trying to do it. I mean, I don't want to like wax nostalgic about millennial life or whatever. I would really like to avoid treating Zoomers the way, frankly, we were treated in the press by the generations ahead of us. But one of the things that, and I've, you know, heard this through like kids I've worked with and stuff like that. Some of them that are a little more copped on. They're just straight up like no one in my generation cares about anything. And it freaks me the fuck out. They're like the chaos energy, all of that. Like they don't necessarily use these words, but they're like, it's deeply nihilistic. Nothing feels meaningful. And I, nothing feels connected to anything. And I just don't want to live like that. Well, I, I, I think what we will see um, is a backlash to that. And you're starting to see that bubble up. And it was actually, I think, starting to bubble up in our generation a little bit, where like a lot of these people who seem like terminally online, like trads, for example, there's going to be a more palatable version of that that becomes more mainstream. And if you look at some of the things that are already kind of trending, like cottage core or mm-hmm. uh, I think like dark academia is like another aesthetic yeah, that's very popular. Totally, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, there's a whole there's a whole bunch of things where I think there's going to be like invented traditions that are simulations of real things um, because like they're most people don't have a like they might literally have a mom or a dad, but they don't have a mom or a dad or an older sister or an older brother who's transmitting wisdom to them in the way that it might have been generations ago. So they're going to fill in the blanks and sort of create their own wisdom. And it is kind of a LARP, but it's a LARP because what else do you have? And I think Mm -hmm. that that'll have a lot of weird ripple effects in the culture, but it's just a symptom of like, you need stability of some kind, even if it's a fake stability, even if it's like the the cultural equivalent of Epcot, right? Like you just need something. (laughs) Yeah, no, (laughs) yeah, Epcot for sure. I mean, this struck me when the other day, I think I've talked about it on the show before. You know, there's this beautiful op-ed that Cornel West co-authored on why he thought Howard in HBCU getting rid of its classics department was such a tragedy. A spiritual catastrophe is, is how he described it. And what he said was, you know, Frederick Douglass risked life and limb to read Cicero. And so we can't fully understand him without having read Cicero ourselves, you know, and he goes on to say that there is no non-tradition. You're either aware that you're in one or you're not. And to the extent that you're unaware is the extent that you're beholden to things beyond your understanding or control. In other words, you're in a situation of like intellectual and cultural unfreedom. Yeah. I, I, I mean, that, that, that totally resonates. I, I, I almost like completely agree with that. Um, I think there's like something similar that happens like uh, with reacting to things. Uh, Mm. A lot of people don't realize that they're in a reaction and they just think like, no, this is like the logical conclusion, but they're not like we were saying before, like there's no sense of context. It's just like, you know, behavior kind of in a vacuum, but of course nothing actually works like that. Yeah, it's interesting, right? So especially if you see like um, the way our uh, arguments and ideas get represented online, right? If you're successfully going to argue something, you're going to say like, this is what I noticed, this is what it means, and this is why it matters. And you sort of need to hit all those three points. 
like a bad academic paper does like one and two. And then it's just like, anyway, we need more scholarship on this. What I've noticed on the internet is it goes from one to three. Is it's like, this is what I noticed. This is why it matters, which is basically an emotional appeal to authority. I have felt this. It happened to me. uh, And that's why it's true. You know, I'm not innocent of this, by the way. I've done this plenty of times in my life. Oh, me too. I mean, this is like my whole online existence is like, all right, I've observed this or I've felt this. So it must be, um, you know, it's, and it's also like very hard to argue why, like why that way of seeing the world, it, you know, isn't valuable. I mean, I think it does have some value, but obviously it's, it's very biased and it's informed mm-hmm. by all sorts of things that are not the thing that you're reporting. Um, but I, like I got into an argument with my my younger sister who's in her early 20s um about like why we can't just like trust people's experiences carte blanche and she was on the side of like well you know this is what you're experiencing every day or even just like one time and it was significant like then that's a very that's very important and um you know it was it was like you know even though I know what the arguments against that are obviously because I was you know that's position I was taking I was like you know the way you're saying this is like actually really compelling. And I could see why a lot of people would just believe this. Right. I mean, maybe to put a little bit of a bow on it here, it's no surprise that we are the way we are right now um, with the whole moment of the culture of confession and the things that preceded it and what's come after when we remember that, one of the things that gets really inculcated in the Tumblr sphere is standpoint theory. Exactly. And that's like, that's what we're doing. <laughs> you know, like that is the hegemonic idea of self discourse and politics. And what, what I like rarely, if ever hear explicitly, it's implied all the time, but explicitly, um, personal experience had been minimized by um, by boomers, by gen, you know, mm-hmm. by and to Gen X. I mean, even in like my own childhood for a long time, it was like, okay, like you're saying this happened to you, but I don't believe you. And it took a lot of cultural fighting um, for like, you know, be- you know, believe people to enter the main, it's like, it was, we just went, we overcorrected. Like mm-hmm. when I was a kid, if someone was like, you know, I, I was raped, uh, they, it's not, it wasn't at all a given that they would be believed, right? Or that they would even totally. get, you know, they would ever get, you know, to report it to the cops even. Like there was no, it was just, it was like that, pro- that person would frankly probably be laughed at or somehow tortured for sharing that. Um, or like you misunderstood and- what happened to you. But I mean, but yeah, now we've, to- we've totally overcorrected and it's like, you know, we mm-hmm. went so long at uh, minimizing people's experiences um, that now all we have is the lived experience. Yeah, I think that's true. And that's part of the atomization you were talking about, you know, like on one part, I can't help but feel um, relieved or something that like more people are believed when they come forward with this stuff. Um, and also disturbed by the cultural phenomena that seem to have come with, with it by this cultural correction. 
that you're describing? Yeah, I mean, there's like, we don't really have a a good space for like, let's say someone gropes you um, and you are authentically traumatized by it and maybe they did do something wrong, but that's also not assault. And it's some some other gray, it was very inappropriate and like your reaction might have been, you know, true and your experience of it might've been very negative, but should that person you know, be gone for the, from the public eye to, until the end of time because they, they violated, um, you know, some kind of standard of etiquette. Like it, and it seems kind of arbitrary. Like there, I'm sure there's people who are crossing that lines and worse ones all the time who are, who face no repercussions. But I think it's also because we don't know what certain things mean to us either. So that's mm. part of the problem with like trusting people's experience as like the sole, you know, like defining thing, like we don't have, we're not coordinated at all. We have no shared values. So like, you know, be, you know, maybe in some communities being groped is enough that like you, you're completely shunned and you face serious repercussions. And it, is, it does rise to the level of rape, but it's like, we're, we live in a, a country where it could, it says that it's anything from, hey, get over it to it's the worst possible thing someone can do. And it's so hard to know, you know, where you're going to land on that. Yeah, exactly. And I think that there's no such thing as, maybe this is a clumsy way of putting it, but like a compassionate skepticism. Yeah, no, I, I think I think you're right. Um, it's, it's hard to, it, it, it seems like you really can't. Um, I, you know, I, I'm of, I'm of the, the school of thought that like, we should be like, if someone tells me that something really, really hurt them, I believe, I believe that they're hurt, um, but mm-hmm. what repercussions the other person faces depends on like a whole bunch of factors that seem to be like completely divorced from the conversation. Yeah, definitely. You know, and there's this idea, there's like the permanent present. There are plenty of things I have done or have happened to me where I have felt violated or what have you. And I've looked back at them and I've been like, I just fundamentally misunderstood what was going on there. Yeah. Or like, <laughs> like that you know, happens, you know? Or like, you know, doing things and changing or like, you know, maybe, you know, you were, you were young or whatever, or like you thought it was the right behavior at the moment. And of course, I'm, at this point, I'm no longer talking about assault, but like, right. you know, saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. Um, I think it's what I think is so unfair for millennials and you see this happen all the time is, you know, to go back to this idea of the culture of confession, we were encouraged. It was the culture. It was the trend, the norm to say every dumb stray thought that floated through your head, even the really (laughs) dark ones. And it was encouraged, like go darker, go darker, go darker. And then we have, you know, after we've put our whole psyche out there, good and bad, especially bad, we have this culture of surveillance and this culture Mm. of snitching and, cancel culture and now it's like well what the hell you told millennials to put their whole psyche out on the internet forever and now we're just we're going back and we're punishing them retroactively for it yeah absolutely i mean these are the distortions of the past that i think we're going to have to learn to navigate when now that we have this enormous surveilled archive of the internet yeah i mean who knows who knows what's next i mean i i feel like we we probably don't know how you know how bad it's going to get 
<laughs> yeah, you think that's bad, you know, just wait until next wait year. Wait until like our, our Twitter DMs are released or something. Oh God, yeah. Oh man, yeah. <laughs> that is, I have definitely had like those stomach lurching moments while like doing dishes or something where that idea has occurred to me and I've been like, oh! Yeah. <laughs> well, I think we'll end it there on that ambiguous note. <laughs> and um, this was wonderful. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to come on. I'd love to have you back at some point. I really enjoyed this. Me too. Thank you so much for the invitation. All right. Well, everybody, that was Default Friend on the culture of confession. Stay safe out there. We'll see you next time.